today as well. So please uh, listen with Amy. The reading for today is Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. I was laughing earlier, a few weeks ago, I, I got invited to come to Redemption Tempe and talk a little bit about Redemption Scottsdale and, and preach there as well. And, and that Sunday, I got to preach on uh, sin and hell and cutting off body parts. And uh, today, I get to preach on Jesus uh, cursing trees and turning over tables. I'm like, man, can I get like a little bit lighter passage next time? Uh, no, but I, in fact, I actually really, I really like it uh, because this is one of the things I love about Redemption Church in that... Uh, we go through books of the Bible, and in going through books of the Bible verse by verse, you are confronted with challenging passages uh, like this one. And so I'm, I'm very thankful to be a part of a church that, in fact, does that. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, let's start with this fig tree incident, shall we? This, uh, this incident that's recorded here in the gospel has caused interpreters angst uh, really since it was written down, uh, because to many... Watching Jesus react to this tree, uh, to them it seems like Jesus is, uh, is maybe short-tempered or petty or vindictive or sort of abusing his power, uh, especially given the detail that we have, that Jesus is reacting to this tree for not having fruit, yet it was not the season for the tree to be producing fruit. And so there's this angst of like, man, why, why would Jesus hold this tree accountable to produce fruit if it's not the season to produce fruit? And I think where a lot of the kind of interpretive angst comes from uh, is the fact that we uh, have a tendency to project upon Jesus motives or feelings that we ourselves might have in a similar situation. We do this a lot, I think, as we're interpreting Scripture. We look at either God the Father or God the Son and Jesus and project upon them these very human, very fallen motives or emotions that we might have if we were in a similar situation. And so I think many of us can read this passage and see Jesus coming here tired and hungry with his, with his crew, having this long walk, this long journey, and saying, man, I could really use some food right now, and seeing this tree and thinking, man, I wonder if that tree has some food on it. I'll go grab it, and it doesn't have it. And Jesus, just in a really bad mood because he has a low blood sugar, just rains down curses upon this poor tree. Uh, and, you know, maybe we can empathize with feeling frustrated. Maybe you've wanted to rain down curses upon a fridge or a vending machine for not having that thing that you thought was going to be in there that you were really craving. Um, that is not, in fact what's happening here. Far from being an abuse 
of power on Jesus' part. This is really an intentional teaching moment on his part. Uh, We need to realize that everything Jesus does and everything that Jesus says in his earthly ministry is purposeful. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows what he's about. Jesus is on mission. He is on the way into Jerusalem, and he knows what's happening in Jerusalem, what's going to happen to him once he gets to Jerusalem. His words are not careless. There's not an act of his that is done flippantly that he needs to repent of later. Jesus is on mission, and he's purposeful. The the passage of Scripture that we have right before this, right before the fig tree incident, is the, what's often referred to as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, where he rides in on, on a colt. And uh, we could spend a whole morning unpacking just that section, but it's sufficient to say this morning that if we were to study that, what we would realize as it relates to this is that it is jam-packed with intentional teaching and intentional actions of Jesus that align with his mission, that align with his purposes. It's full of all these choices that Jesus is making that's aligning himself with messianic prophecies. So Jesus knows what he's doing. These aren't just uh, careless actions. He's not just reacting in the moment. He's not just shooting from the hip. He's not just frustrated because he has low blood sugar and just wants to take out his wrath on this poor tree. He's using it as a teaching moment. So when Jesus and his crew arrive here, uh, they would have been hungry. They, they would have had to walk a long way to arrive in Jerusalem. So Jesus and his crew comes, this long journey, they're finally there. They see this tree in the distance, and Jesus realizes, I can use this tree as an illustration. And some would argue that uh, even at this point, if the tree didn't have ripe fruit, it would have had some fruit. It would have had unripe fruit, similar to the way citrus trees grow, where they develop little fruit, and early on it's bitter, and people wouldn't usually eat it, but some people could. Maybe the locals do, maybe not. Um, Maybe, perhaps. Probably, though, the detail of it not being the season for fruit, more than anything, reinforces for us that it's the time of Passover in Jerusalem, which is a really important part of this narrative. Either way, whether it was supposed to have fruit or ripe fruit or not during this time, uh, because Jesus is a master teacher, he recognizes the situation and he realizes, I can use this. I can use this to make a point and an illustration. So they arrive. Here are these pilgrims that have come on a long journey and they're hungry. And here's this tree that exists in its very nature to produce fruit fruit that nourishes people, fruit that meets that hunger for people. And here is this tree that is full of leaves. It's full of growth. From a distance, it would have maybe the the appearance of health and growth and maybe even perhaps fruit and fruitful growth. But upon closer inspection, there's no fruit at all. There is no fruit. And thus the tree provides nothing for these hungry pilgrims that need to be nourished. And as a result, Jesus withers the tree to its roots to make a point. Again, he's he's a master, master teacher and well aware of the mission that he's on. He knows that right after this, he and his crew are going to the temple and some stuff's gonna go down in the temple. And he uses this tree, this fig tree, 
as an illustration of the point that he's going to make, the bigger point, the more important point that he's going to make once he gets to the temple. And even the way Mark frames this chapter shows us that that really is what we need to focus on. If you look at even the structure, it goes fig tree, temple, fig tree. Right in the middle there is the focal point of this passage. What Jesus does and what Jesus says when he gets to the temple. And this fig tree serves as an illustration. Like the tree, the temple exists in its very nature to produce a type of fruit. It exists for a purpose, to produce a type of fruit. And like the tree, Jesus is about to go give it a closer inspection to see if, in fact, it is bearing fruit. So, what we see when Jesus enters the temple is his only act of violence in the Gospels. His only act of violence in the Gospels. What we see is Jesus' righteous anger on display. And this idea of the righteous anger of God is something that, it's a characteristic of God that we we don't like to dwell on all that much. Um, But it's important and it's good and it's something that we should celebrate because the righteous anger of God is tied closely to him being a God of justice. And so here we see the righteous anger of God on display. And if we're a people after God's own heart, if we're a people that desire to draw close to God, seeing an example of God's righteous anger on display in Scripture should force us to, well, one, pause, and then ask the question, what's making him so angry? What is it here that grieves the heart of God? And if we're people after God's own heart, we should be asking that question. What is it here that grieves the heart of God? Because I want it to grieve my heart as well. And so we, we see Jesus sort of reacting in righteous anger. And let me point out, this is not, again, uncontrolled anger. He's, it says teaching the people, okay? This is, this is not sort of an, an uncontrolled, blind rage. It's a very intentional action. So what made him so angry? What made Jesus so angry? The answer is found in the fact that something was supposed to be happening in the temple that was not happening in the temple. Something was supposed to be happening there that wasn't. Something that is closely tied to the heart and the purposes of God. Foundational to the heart and purposes of God. And really, it's not even just that something wasn't happening. It's not just that there was an absence of activity. It's the fact that the activity in the temple was actually contrary to the heart and the purposes of God. It's not just that it wasn't happening. It's that what was happening was creating barriers to the purposes of God in this place. So what was supposed to be happening? Jesus actually tells us. Quoting a passage from the book of Isaiah, the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. A house of prayer for all the nations. A house of prayer. What does that mean? Prayer is really um, the most intimate communion that we can have with God in this life. The most intimate personal connection and God, God invites us into this communion. He invites us into this connection. He invites us into this dialogue. And prayer really is faith in action in many ways. Prayer is faith 
that believes enough to ask. Prayer is faith that believes enough to wrestle with God. Prayer is faith that believes that there's no other source of hope or truth or wisdom to go to aside from God. The act of going to God in prayer, to wrestle, to ask, to glorify, acknowledges that he is our true, supreme, only source of hope and wisdom and truth. And so in a sense, prayer is this beautiful, distilled, intimate act of worship. And that's what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a house of intimate, beautiful, genuine worship. A house of worship for all the nations, it tells us. And we need to be reminded here that God's plan from the very beginning was to bring all nations back to himself. Even when God set his redemptive plan in motion, all the way back in Genesis when he calls Abraham, he tells Abraham that through you, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. All of the families, all of the people of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Abraham, and the plan I set in motion through you, which ultimately culminates in Jesus. From the very beginning, this was God's plan. And we see it throughout scriptures if we know what we're looking for. And so we have a passage like this in Isaiah 49 where God is calling his people to be a light to the nations and he tells that it's the purpose of his faithful one to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. And he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then in Isaiah 56, this passage that Jesus himself is quoting here in the temple says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. See the picture he's painting here. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. It's always been God's plan from the very beginning to bring the nations to himself, to heal the nations, to unify the peoples of the earth, in unity and worship under the one true God, in a restored creation. It has always been his plan. And see, the temple was not just created to be a monument. It was not just created to be this beautiful architectural work, this point of civic pride in the middle of Jerusalem. It was not created just to create these wonderful kind of public spaces that people could gather in and meet new friends, and talk about politics, and conduct business. The temple was not created just to be a monument or a civic space. The temple was created from the very beginning in alignment with these purposes of God, in alignment with the mission of God. The temple was created to be a house of very intentional activity. It was created to be the dwelling place of God among his people, It was created to be a table at which people came to find forgiveness and restored communion with God. 
It was created to be the place where the nations came together with one voice to worship Yahweh. It was created to be the epicenter of worship and mission for God's people. The temple was created to be the epicenter of worship and mission for God's people. This was the fruit that the temple was supposed to bear. This is its very nature. This is its very, the reason for its existence, to bear the fruit of worship and mission. So what was happening in the temple? If that's what's supposed to be happening, what was happening in the temple when Jesus got there? The incident that we have recorded takes place um, in a, a spot called the Court of the Gentiles. And the temple was constructed in such a way that Entrance into it had these sort of successive stages leading all the way to the Holy of Holies, which is the most exclusive part of the temple. And the court of the Gentiles was an outer court, an early court, that was set aside specifically for non-Jews to come and worship Yahweh. The problem is, by the time of Jesus, a spirit of hatred and separation and segregation toward Gentiles, towards non-Jews, had taken root, had emerged in Israel. And if you think about it, if you step back and think about it and and know any of the history, biblical history and, and history of Israel, it's really not hard to see why things would go that direction. And that spirit of hatred and separation and segregation would emerge Israel as a, as a nation emerged out of oppression. They were formed as a nation out of slavery. And their history includes multiple seasons of being attacked, being enslaved, being in exile from foreign peoples. And even as we get to this point in history, Jesus' time in history, they are under the yoke of oppression, of Roman rule. They have the Gentiles oppressing them as we stand here. And in this process, they're always wrestling with these sort of culture wars uh, and alternative religions, um, other faith systems, other practices that threaten their very identity as a people. This is their history. This is what they've known. And through all of this, they're wrestling, Israel is wrestling with what it means to be a people set apart for the Lord. A unique people, different from the Gentiles, different from these other cultures, a people set apart for the Lord. What does it mean to be that, facing these other dynamics, these other political dynamics? And they're also wrestling with this question of what does it mean to trust and rest in the specific promises that you've promised to us as Israel, given these other political dynamics? What does it mean to be a people set apart? What does it mean to be a people blessed by the Lord? given the fact that we've known nothing but battle and oppression with foreign peoples. Well, at some point, the people of Israel lost sight of the fact that being set apart and being blessed by God was for the sake of the nations. That being a people who were the hub, the epicenter of genuine worship, who had a close relationship with Yahweh, who lived as Yahweh desired them to live, who were being blessed by Yahweh, being that in an exclusive relationship with the one true God, being set apart and being blessed by Yahweh was for the sake of being a blessing to the nations, for the sake of being a light to the nations, not as they came to believe at the expense of the nations. Does that make sense? That distortion that enters in? But as we are prone to do as fallen human beings, 
They developed an ideology based in pride and fear that linked their hope with other people's downfalls. Facing the suppression, they developed this ideology that linked their hope and their identity with the downfall of other people and their identity. And again, this is hard. Um, those other cultures, those other people groups, posed very real threats to the people of Israel. And so they're wrestling this, and God did, in fact, promise that he would judge them too, that he would judge the nations, that he would judge the Gentiles. But as we get to the time of Jesus, the popular understanding, the popular expectation was that the Messiah would come, and when the Messiah came, he would purge Israel of the foreigners. He would purge Israel of the Gentiles. He would, what they thought, purify Israel by getting all of the others out. And in this fear, in this hatred, the hope was that this purging would be of the sort of vengeful, violent, trampling variety. So, back to our story. Here comes the Messiah. He's arrived. And he's about to enter the temple, his house. He's veiled, in a sense, in that people don't recognize him. People don't understand that he's the Messiah. About to enter into the court of the Gentiles. The Messiah has arrived. Who does he purge? Who does he direct his anger towards? It's not the Gentile pilgrims, it's the religious leaders of Israel. It's the people that turned a house of worship into a marketplace. It's the people who turned what should have been a welcome place for the nations into what was essentially a dangerous political powder keg that could have exploded into a riot at any moment. And the activity in the court effectively removed the one place where the nations could come and worship the one true God. Again, it wasn't just that the activity that was supposed to be happening wasn't happening there. It was the activity that was happening was creating a barrier to the purposes of God, to the heart of God. The activity that was happening there made it impossible for that court to be a house of prayer for the nations. So again, why was Jesus so angry? Why was Jesus angry? What grieved him when he got there? Because in the temple, Jesus found complete disregard for both the heart of God and the purposes of God in the one place that both should have been on the greatest display. In the temple, Jesus found complete disregard for the heart of God and the purposes of God in the one place he could have expected to find it on display. Again, the temple existed to produce a certain type of fruit. Just like a tree exists to produce a certain type of fruit. The temple existed in its very nature to produce worship and mission. And it was bustling with activity, especially at this time, especially during Passover. It would have been jam-packed with people, with sounds, with smells, a ton of activity. And from a distance, it would have had the appearance of health and growth and all of this wonderful things happening. But sometimes, sometimes we confuse 
activity with fruitfulness. Sometimes we confuse activity with faithfulness and productivity. And the truth is, just like the tree, upon closer inspection, there was no fruit at all. There was no fruit at all. And so the pilgrims who arrived hungry found nothing that satisfied them. And they were not fed. So, what are you and I supposed to do with this truth? What are you and I supposed to do with this? Because there's not a, there's not a one-to-one correlation between first century temple practices and worship of the church. It's, it's not a one-to-one. I don't know if you realize this. We do not have a court of the Gentiles here, nor will there be one at the new property. It's a very different circumstances. Things have changed, okay, uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that the temple itself was destroyed in AD 70. And like the tree that was withered to its roots, not a single stone of the temple was left unturned when it was destroyed. The temple no longer exists. But the truth is, after Jesus, the temple and its practices and its systems were no longer needed anyway. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus offered in himself, in his life, death, and resurrection, one final sacrifice for all time. And the sacrifice was finished and satisfied. And scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians that it's the people of God, the church, you and I, who are now the dwelling place of God. The church is God's temple. And so the circumstances have changed. However, what we see in this passage is the heart of God and the purposes of God on display. And the truth is that the heart of God and the purposes of God have not changed. The heart of God and the purposes of God are the same today as they were then, as they always have been. And so we can look at that and understand what can we learn from that? What can we apply about the heart of God and the purposes of God for us today? And like the temple, the church does not exist to be a monument. The church does not exist to be a civic organization, a social club. We are being called. We are being built up. We are being formed. We are being shaped for a purpose. And that purpose is directly tied to the mission of God, to the purposes of God. God has a plan for us, and that is why he is bringing us together. That is why he is building his church, to bear fruit, to be the epicenter of genuine worship, to be a light to the nations, testifying to the salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what he desires for us, and it's his heart and his purposes, the same today as they have always been. To call people to himself, to draw people into genuine worship, into restored communion with him, so that those people could be a light to the nation, so that he could gather his people together, so that his salvation could reach to the ends of the earth, so that he could restore everything in his creation and make all things new again. This is the heart and the purposes of God. And if we lose sight of this, if we lose sight of that being our identity, if we lose sight of this and if we make this, if we make church about something else, then we've lost our very soul. 
If we lose sight of this and if we make church about anything else, then we've lost our very soul. And so we have to use this occasion, we have to use this, this passage and this study to ask ourselves where we too might have strayed from the heart and the purposes of God. And that's the question facing us this morning as we look to apply this. Where might we, as his church 2,000 years later, have strayed from the heart of God and the purposes of God? I think, unfortunately, as a starting point, we don't have to go much farther than these two main issues that Jesus addresses in the temple. I think we don't have to go much farther than that because, unfortunately, it is a fair but particularly damning critique of the Western evangelical church that it often functions more like a marketplace than a house of worship. It is a sad but fair critique that the Western evangelical church often functions more like a marketplace than a genuine house of worship. And markets in themselves are not evil, that needs to be said. But if a church is motivated by market dynamics, it will not be motivated by worship and formation and mission. The two will just be at odds with one another. Because the market and market dynamics demand something. They demand sort of the regular rolling out of, of sexy new goods and services that can be exchanged. Market dynamics demand momentum. They demand people and consumers to always be excited. They demand that the people buying those goods and services and engaging those goods and services be treated like customers and consumers. And if that's the case, if those dynamics drive us, we will be at odds with worship and mission. Market dynamics leave little or no room for things like patience and sacrifice or lament or discipline or correction. If we as leaders of the church are to treat you all like customers, that leaves little room for correction, <laughs> for saying things you might not like, because in the marketplace, the customer is always right. You can see how this puts us at odds with worship and formation and subsequently for mission. Marketplace dynamics leave little room for things like lament, things like sacrifice. But along with joy and celebration, these are the things that are the currency of worship and formation. These are the things that are integral to the life of the church. And so if we're driven by marketplace dynamics, we will not be driven by worship all the time. And the second thing is checking our own hearts again. It is a tragic reality that racism and xenophobia, this sort of irrational, elevated fear and hatred of people from other countries, is rampant in the evangelical church. Rampant. So much so that, accurate or not, public perception is those who would associate with evangelical church are more likely to have racist tendencies and more likely to have these elevated feelings of hatred and fear towards people from other countries. Men and women, that is a problem. That is a scandal of the church. And the truth is, the kingdom of heaven, and by connection, by extension, the body of Christ is not going to be populated by people who are just like you. 
You understand that? The, the kingdom of heaven and the body of Christ is not going to be populated by people who are just like you. They're not going to have the same skin color as you. They're not going to speak the same language as you. They're not going to have the same cultural preferences as you. That all might be the case in our local community, but that is not the case in the body of Christ. That is certainly not the case in the kingdom of heaven. And that is a reality that we have to accept. No, we don't have, it's not about accepting that reality. It's about embracing that reality. It's about learning to see the beauty of that reality and celebrating it and pursuing your participation and seeing it flourish because that is the heart of God. And if we're asking ourselves, where have we strayed from the heart of God? Where have we strayed from the purposes of God? We can start with these two things right here. Now, G.K. Chesterton once said, it's always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls. There's only one at which one stands, which might be a little bit of a downer quote, but I think it's sobering for us. And so we always come back to this question of, God, where have we veered? Where have we strayed from your heart and your purposes? And where are we creating barriers to the nations being drawn into genuine worship? Where have we strayed? And we have to wrestle with this question, and we have to look inward, and we have to be honest with ourselves. And we have to remember that success for the church, success for redemption, Arcadia, success for redemption, Scottsdale, success for the big C church, universally and globally, success for the church will be determined by our faithfulness to the heart and the purposes of God. Success will be determined not by attendance numbers, not by buzz in the community, not by anything else. It will be determined by our faithfulness to the heart and the purposes of God. And, and I wonder if we really get this. It's the reason we constantly go to God in prayer, seeking his heart and checking our own heart. It's the reason we constantly go to scriptures to understand the heart of God and the purposes of God. And if we really get it, that this is what our identity and this is what our success is bound up in, it changes everything for you. It changes for myself as a pastor. It changes how I lead. It changes how I teach. It changes what I champion, what I celebrate. It changes everything for you as you participate in the church, as you're a congregant in the church. It changes what you expect of the church. It changes what you invest in in the church. It changes everything if we understand that this is our goal. And this is our purpose, to be faithful to the heart of God and the purposes of God. And in all of this, it's not that we're driven by a fear of punishment. As, as we sort of check how we might have strayed, it's not that we're driven by a fear of punishment. As God's people secure in Jesus, we rest in grace. Our only fear is that our blindness will lead us away from the heart of God. And our only fear is that our blind spots would cause our actions to become barriers to the purposes of God and the redemptive mission of God. And we're not driven by fear. We're driven by love, and it's because we love Jesus, our Savior and Lord. It's because we love Jesus so much that we want to leave no occasion for him to have to turn over our tables, if you know what I mean. It's because we love him we want to leave no occasion for him to have to turn over our tables. And instead, we look forward to the day where we see him face to face and we hear him say, well done. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you so much for the ways that you teach us and shape us and guide us. For the purposes of your mission in this world, for the purposes of your plan to bring healing and restoration, to make all things new, to set everything right. Lord, help us not lose sight of the fact that we exist as a church because of and for your mission. Lord, help us to see our blind spots. Help us have the courage to acknowledge our blind spots. Help us to make changes where we need to make changes. Help us to lay down idols where we need to lay down idols. Lord, we desire to be a faithful people. We desire to be used by you. We desire to understand what genuine worship is and means and looks like. And as we grow in that understanding, we desire to be a light to the nations, to our neighbors, locally, globally, all people, whether they look like us or whether they don't. Lord, help us to be an epicenter house of genuine worship that serves as a light to the nations. That you celebrate and are satisfied in. We thank you for the grace that we've been given and the fact, Lord, that we can rest in that and that we don't earn our salvation and it's not about our faithfulness as to whether your purposes are accomplished. Lord, you are sovereign, you are good, and we rest in that. But because we love you so much, we want to honor you. We want to follow you. We want to be faithful. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.